Amen. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. <clears throat> hey there, across the way, auditorium too. You guys look lovely per usual. And if you're out there in Facebook land or YouTube land, thank you for joining us there. And if you are here and you are visiting with us, thank you very much for taking time out of your Sunday to gather with us. We are super glad to have you. We have a team that is ready to serve you and answer any questions you might have about life here at Fellowship out at the Welcome Center, which is in the Commons over here near Auditorium One. <clears throat> now, if you stick around for any length of time here at Fellowship Greenville, you will usually find us preaching and teaching straight through entire books of the Bible. We're gonna start Ephesians one month from now. We'll start Ephesians, so I'm excited about that for the fall. But this summer, we are pausing to think about what scripture has to say about our words, the words we use. <clears throat> Proverbs 18 says, death, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James chapter three says that the tongue is like, like a spark that can set an entire forest on fire. Matthew 12, Jesus says, the heart speaks out of the mouth. So the words you say tell me something about your heart. <clears throat> Needless to say, we need to be considering how our words hurt and heal and how they sow death and life. So we're calling this series, The Words We Use. And the starting point for us is the, <clears throat> the subline there, it's the conviction that we believe that actually God's word can inform and change our words so that we end up speaking life into others. And we've talked about words of confession. We've talked about words of conflict. <clears throat> we've talked about words of witness. And today we get to talk about words of worship, words of worship. Now, next week, you get the honor and high privilege of sitting under the, uh, the tutelage of the Right Reverend Dr. Apostle Bishop uh, Matthew Rexford. <clears throat> it is his uh, once every other year sermon, and I know that um, <clears throat> you'll be blessed by that next week. And his message next week is gonna be a little bit more focused and a little bit more specific. Um, but today, with words of worship, we're gonna go as broadly as we can. Today, we're gonna just talk about one thing, and that is singing. We're just do singing for 40 minutes. That's what we're gonna do. Then we're gonna, we're gonna uh, sing a little bit. We're actually gonna do it. <clears throat> now, um, my favorite gift <clears throat> that I got last Christmas was actually the time and space to start writing a new book. Um, what's the book about? Thank you so much for asking. Um, hold on tight. I mean, this is it's really, really hype, super riveting. Just, just kind of buckle in. It is a biblical theology and philosophy of singing, and I can't wait to sell both copies. It's gonna be incredible. Um, <clears throat> thank you so much, Mom. But here's the deal. Uh, here's why I can't not write a book about singing. Here's why I can't, I'm compelled. Here's why I can't not write a book about singing. Singing is one of the most <clears throat> repeated commands in the whole Bible. It's right up there with believe and do not fear. But you know the problem with, is with believe and do not fear? <clears throat> the problem is sometimes you don't know if you're believing or fearing. You're like, did I get enough sleep? Or is this, this is like subjective and spiritual and esoteric and intangible. Like, <clears throat> I don't know if I'm doing one of those. Guess what you never have a problem with? Knowing whether or not you're singing, right? You're just doing it, right? You just, you just sing. And if the Bible says it, <clears throat> we should do it, it which is also a, a good side point. Um, how many of you have ever thought, man, I really wanna know what God's will is? You wanna know God's will? You wanna know that you know God's will? I'll, I'll help you guys. Just open your fat mouth and sing. Just do it. <clears throat> it's in the book. Just sing. Don't overthink it. Don't hyperanalyze your motives like your feeling is what the world revolves around. Don't give me a list of excuses while you're exempt. Just do what the thing says. Do what God says and sing a little bit. Okay, look, <clears throat> when you open to Psalm 47 in the Bible, 
You don't have to pray about what the passage means. You don't have to go to seminary to get the interpretation just right. Look on the screen, Psalm 47. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to the king, sing praises. God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Again, don't pray about the thing, just do it. Easiest line in the whole Bible to interpret and apply. Hey, God's awesome. So open your mouth and sing about it. Now, the obedience here is not vague. It's not like, hmm, interesting. It is direct. Buddy the elf gets it. He can be our rabbi on this. His definition of singing is really simple. Hey, you move your voice up and down, except it's longer and louder. Just just do it. So we're going to obey Buddy the elf and obey God. And God knows what's best for us, so we should do what he says. And think about the consequences of that. You're going to end up with a truncated or an abbreviated experience of life with God if you neglect what he asks of us. So check it out. Follow this. If you would like to be frustrated and you'd really like to be annoyed or you'd like to be bothered or disgruntled with God, his world, and other people, just don't do what he says. Meaning, if you want your life to be less than awesome, just don't sing. Easy equation. Also, uh, beyond this, the primary emotion associated with singing in the Bible is like happiness or joy. So let's just do it again. If you don't want to be happy, <clears throat> if you don't want to be joyful, hopeful, or filled with positivity in your life, if you don't want that, by all means, please don't sing. Just, just shh, zip, don't. Now, isn't that as annoying as it is convicting? Right? <clears throat> but you know what we do? we find a way to overcomplicate that. And I'll tell you how. Here's how we overcomplicate that. If you're a follower of Jesus that loves the grace upon grace upon grace that we have in Jesus, you know what we do? We instantly deputize ourselves as police against legalism and lifeless obedience. Like we're looking for legalism underneath every rock. We're on the prowl against like mindless obedience. That's what we're doing. And so when you hear a pastor say, hey, the Bible says it, just do it, chill out and shut up. Woohoo. When you hear that, sorry. When you hear that, you go, I don't like that. Because you're like, some, some people believe in grace so much they think obedience is a cuss word and that kind of that bothers me too. And, and we all know, here's the deal, we all know deep in our guts that God doesn't want a bunch of singing robots and that's why I'm trying to write a book to wrestle this thing to the ground. Because here's the deal, I want to know why the Bible commands it so much. God, why all the singing? Why not like laughing or jogging or eating or dancing? Why singing so much? So I'm gonna obey, but I still have lots of questions about why we should use our words like this. Now, sometimes it's our experience, <coughs> our experience that overcomplicates things. So for me, my experience, I am a Southern Baptist preacher's kid and singing was omnipresent in my life. Sunday morning, <coughs> Sunday night, Wednesday night, VBS, youth group, mission trip, summer camp, retreats. And if you know my mama, lucky you, her whole life is like this sung dialogue between God and everybody she meets. And she's the greatest and she's happy. And I happen to think that that has something to do with it. So for me, singing has just always kind of been there. And so the obedience part of it isn't intimidating or weird, even though I still have questions. But I know that everybody doesn't share my story. I know that some of you are 
you're introverts. And so for you, singing might make you feel like you're trying to be somebody that you're not and you don't like that possible feeling of insincerity. And I get that, like respect for that. I understand that. Some of you might be musicians and you are too busy to sing because you are either A, judging or B, appreciating uh, what's going on in front of you, musically speaking. Some of you grew up in a church where the singing was so dead, like, dear God, help us. Why, why, why? The singing was so dead that you can't see how this would have any spiritual vitality or meaning to your life whatsoever, right? Some of you, that's your experience. Now, others of you, you grew up in a church and the singing was passionate and powerful, but the same people that you sang beside or that sang in front of you, you also saw their lives and it was just filled with anger, abuse, and it was joyless, completely joyless. And so for you, you have questions about singing and singing might actually even come with some heavy emotional baggage. I have friends for whom that is the case. My point is that the invitation that the Bible gives us to sing is more layered and intense than we realize, and it demands some exploration. And that's why this week, this sermon is gonna be a little bit different than our previous messages. So we've been thinking about, look, 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 we've been thinking about what we should do with our words, how we need to be more intentional, more deliberate when it comes to things like conflict and confession and witness. But today, this is not a should-do message as much as it is a reinterpretation of our words of worship. This is not a, hey, we're not doing it, so we need to get on it thing. This is a, we're doing it, but we have no clue the supernatural thing that's happening when we use our words to sing. And I think if we understand that, things will start to change. Like what is going on in our minds and our bodies and our souls when we obey the biblical directive to sing? You can feel it. We know deep down that something special is happening when we join together in one voice with harmony and melody. It's visceral. You feel it. But what is it? How is singing a uniquely elevated form of speech and communication and why? Why is it so different than just than just speaking or simply put, putting all these in a, in a blender, what happens when we sing? So what's going on when we do Psalm 47? God is king over all the earth, sing praises. What's happening when we do that? That is our question today about our words. What happens when we sing? Now, <clears throat> here's how we're gonna tackle this. We're gonna look at five biblical truths about singing that will fill out our answer and I think draw us deeper into life with God where our words are more naturally life-giving to others. Uh, also, these five truths, uh, they might appear simplistic on the surface, but each, each one of these five truths is like the little part of the iceberg that you see above the surface of the water. There's way more that you don't see than meets the eye. And lastly, um, by way of intro, it is strange for me and maybe for you guys that we're not anchoring down in one passage of scripture this morning. So thank you in advance for your patience because we're gonna be mentioning a lot of Bible verses this morning. Because with singing and scripture, it's a lot like the Trinity and scripture. It's explicit very rarely, it's beauty is, but it's implicit, it's beauty is implicit everywhere. So here we go. What happens when we sing biblical truth Numero uno, number one. First of all, singing is divine. Singing is divine. Now, I actually think this is the case about music itself, although I think that's a slightly different conversation. I'm talking about the singing itself. Singing is divine. And I don't mean like, oh, that chocolate cake is divine. That's not what I'm talking about. 
What I mean is that there is something supernatural, mystical, transcendent, um, other words that maybe make Baptists nervous, like sacramental. There's something different, something other, something uniquely holy about the gift of singing. C.S. Lewis knew it, and that's why Aslan sang Narnia into existence and the magician's nephew. And um, for a thousand homeschool points, uh, that's why Tolkien had Iluvatar create the world through music in the Cimmerillion. You're welcome. They both knew, they both knew that there was something so otherworldly about singing that it has to be especially divine at its essence. And I like to think that when they wrote that stuff down, they were thinking about Zephaniah chapter three. Zephaniah is three short chapters at the end of the Old Testament, and it's in a picture of comfort and hope to Israel. Look at what Zephaniah three seventeen says. I have it on the screens for you. Zephaniah 3.17. <clears throat> the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That's a singing phrase. And he will quiet you with his love. And he will exult delight over you with singing. God's singing here in Zephaniah 3. This is God the singer. He doesn't need to sing. <clears throat> he doesn't have to sing. He created music. It's meant to serve him. And yet he is singing here. And I love that he is not, uh, he's not reluctant like a friend dragged him up against his will on karaoke night. That's not, what, that's not the picture you get. He's belting it out. The Hebrew word for singing, the last word in the verse there is renah. It means to sing out, to shout out, to cry out. Like you have to open your mouth wide to renah. You can't mumble hum this thing. This is joyful reverb, happy loudness. This is, renah is how you sing the encore when you see your favorite band live. So guess what? You ready? The staggering picture is not that, oh wow, God's singing. It's that he is shredding, okay? He's letting it rip. This is a massive picture. I love this picture. This is what I mean by singing is divine. But there's something else, and you might have to bear with me for just a second. Um, We all know that two plus two is four, no big deal. but you didn't create that, you discovered that. Aristotle has a line in which he says, uh, a story entails a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you're like, where'd you go, Aristotle? But he, look, he didn't create that, he discovered that. And it's the same thing with music. Music as sound waves exists outside of us, and that existence outside of us that is music has a natural order, proportion, beauty, and relationship built into itself. <clears throat> I can't tell a C chord to sound the same, C, E, and G, and then add an F sharp and an E flat because I want to. I can't. It will not sound the same. It will result in unpleasant dissonance and not natural harmony. Basically, and musically, no matter how hard you try, you can't make two plus two equal five. You can't do it. W- what I'm saying here <clears throat> is that song is a divine breadcrumb trail and a neon arrow pointing beyond us. So follow me here. It is evidence that there are realities that exist outside of us that have innate beauty and relationship and harmony as a part of their essence. And our participation in these realities external from us that exist outside of us can cause us to take greater delight in them and in the world in general. And watch, it's the exact same with God. You didn't create him. God's existence, his harmony, his unity, and his beauty are not contingent upon your perception of them. Yet, by faith, 
when we engage with and participate in the song of divine love, his glory becomes all the more incredible to us. <clears throat> and because I'm a musician or a fake musician, and I'm gonna ska skate on unconditional thin ice here. In most music, the most important numbers are three, seven, and 12, three notes in a chord, seven notes in primary scales, and only 12 notes overall. And even the exceptions to this prove the rule. If you wanna talk about unique Eastern music and all that stuff, I'd love to. And I'm probably trying too hard here, but when you open the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the biggest and most three important numbers are three, seven, and 12, and they all represent divine activity, divine completion, and divine perfection. <clears throat> now, I am sure there's an argument out there made by somebody way smarter than me that can dissolve this correlation. I've tried to find one, and I haven't yet. So for me, just talking about me, for me, <clears throat> right now, it proves the point, and Lewis and Tolkien and Zephaniah all agree it proves the point, there is something wildly divine about singing and music. Clara Rogers also agrees. I found an 1893 book by a girl named Clara Rogers called A Philosophy of Singing. And in this book, <clears throat> Clara Rogers does this. She goes, the highest expression of God is humanity. The highest expression of humanity is art. The highest expression of art is music because of its breadth of emotional engagement and possibility. <clears throat> so the highest expression of God is humanity. The highest expression of humanity is art. The highest expression of art is music. And the highest expression of music is singing because the voice is the only instrument that is attached to the organism of the soul itself. <clears throat> so <clears throat> in Clara Rogers' understanding, when we sing, there is a more direct connection to God through song than almost anything else we do because the act of singing is so different and unique and other and sacred that nothing compares to it. <clears throat> Rogers is telling us through the corridors of history that there is no parallel to the words we use in song, so we better focus extra hard when we sing because something special and divine is happening. <clears throat> One of my favorite lyrics ever, um, David, Psalm 32, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me <clears throat> with songs, <clears throat> plural, songs of deliverance. How humbling and powerful is the thought that God himself surrounds his people with the songs of heaven. Hey, how much peace should that give you? How much should that reality still the chaos of our fears and our insecurities? That in Zephaniah 3, God is singing over us. And in Psalm 32, he is singing around us. That's so beautiful. And because I can't not, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, he sings in three-part harmony. So yay, Bible jokes. All right, so what happens when we sing? We reflect God and we join him. Why? Because number one, singing is divine. Number two, big, big biblical truth number two about singing. Singing strengthens community. Singing strengthens community. Community is a great Christian buzzword and we all know we need it and at the same time, we all know that it's difficult and it can require a lot out of us, but singing is here to help. In 2015, in her book, A Philosophy of Song and Singing, Jeanette Bicknell writes, by singing in a group, we choose to recede for a moment from selfish concerns and pursue harmony with those around us. There's an old German proverb that says, the one who speaks with me is my fellow human, but the one who sings with me is my brother or sister. 
Also, on a scientific level, um, there is a drastic spike in the pleasure hormone, oxytocin, when you sing. It's the same hormone that is released <clears throat> during sex. And when you repeatedly share an oxytocin release with the same person or the same people, it creates powerful, this is science, it creates powerful bonds of trust and connection and intimacy. <clears throat> and also, research has proven that singing with other people regularly decreases levels of depression and loneliness all the while it supports community. Now let's just do it really, really, really practically. If we're in here on a Sunday morning and we're singing out the power and the beauty of how Jesus has conquered death, oh, praise the name, we're singing that out, we're declaring the gospel and song of how great God is, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is your love. And you look across the room at somebody singing and that person, their existence bothers you. You don't like the way they do their parenting. <clears throat> you definitely don't like their politics. You don't like what they post on social media. And you know what, I, you know what she said about what he did. And you're thinking these things and we're trying to sing this thing. Do you know how hard it is to be increasingly angry at that person and set yourself up as judge against them if you're singing the same song about the grace of Jesus? You know how tough that is to sustain that kind of posture towards them? I'm not talking about your motives for singing. That's a side discussion. And I'm not saying you still don't need to have a conversation with that individual. <clears throat> what I'm talking about is that singing together changes how we relate to each other. And that's God's fault. He did that. It's his plan. Talk, take it up with him. You have to. Singing makes community happen. Maybe even when we'd rather it not. It forges, it generates, it strengthens connection unlike any other activity. <clears throat> Why do you think God continually, the whole Bible calls his people to sing throughout all of scripture? Psalm 95 called us to worship this morning. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Ephesians 5, be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come to his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. Hebrews 13, through Jesus, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. And Besides the simple fact that the second biggest book in the Bible, Psalms, is a corporate songbook, the hymnal of God's people, besides that, there are dozens upon dozens of other individual examples of God calling for his people to sing together. Now, <clears throat> in what I'm getting ready to say, I know that there are a lot of variables that play, a lot of irons in the fire, but when I hear from people, hey, Jim, you know, Community is really tough to come by. And I, I really feel like I don't have a sense of <clears throat> belonging and connection with other people. I want to be a good pastor and I want to ask them a lot of questions related to that. But one of them is, hey, you sing at church. And do you ever, I don't know, find time to go sing with other believers anywhere? I mean, if, <clears throat> if I'm reading the Bible, I think that's a fair question, I, I guess. And I, I know it might sound weird, but I'm just looking at science and scripture and they both say that we should be singing if we're looking for community. And so I'm gonna choose to believe there is a divine design in that. Singing <clears throat> strengthens community. Biblical picture number three, biblical truth number three. 
Singing expresses emotion. Singing expresses <clears throat> emotion. Um, this summer, as we've been talking about words, I've been thinking a lot about how difficult it can be to get precise, exact words that perfectly coincide with what you're feeling inside of you. Uh, I, I know it can be really, really tough, and I don't think God's left us out to dry. I don't think he's withholding. The gift of song is one of his many gifts to serve this fragility. So singing expresses emotion. <clears throat> um, in my mid-20s, I was sitting on a back porch late one night uh, with an agnostic friend of mine as he smoked his trashy little cigarettes, and he was complaining about how whiny and over-emotional church music was. He's like, man, it is the same chords over and over and over again. The music is so lame, it just kind of puts people in a trance, <clears throat> and it's emotionally manipulative. And it was late, and I did want to think about his comment, <clears throat> and so I didn't I didn't launch into an attack or, or, or anything. I think I kind of half agreed like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm sure there are people for whom that's the case. And yeah, there's some really lame Christian music out there. Like, <laughs> I'm with you, I get that. And then I just kind of let the conversation die. But after thinking about his comments for a, a decade plus now, uh, I'm at a place where I can confidently say a, a couple things. Yes, I believe God gave us singing, but I also believe God gave us emotions. And beyond that, I think God gave us singing to help guide and mold and express our emotions. And now I would feel far more competent to <clears throat> engage with his uh, criticisms and his thoughts. 500 years ago, <clears throat> Martin Luther said, experience testifies that after the word of God, music alone deserves to be celebrated as mistress of the emotions of the human heart. For if you want to revive the sad, startle the jovial, encourage the despairing, humble the conceited, pacify the raving. And who was able to enumerate all of the lords of the human heart? I mean, the emotions of the heart, which incite a man to all virtues and vices. What can you find that is more efficacious than music? <clears throat> Nothing else gets the job done like music. All right, Martin, I agree, bro, but why, where do you get that? <clears throat> he says experience testifies next to the word of God, so I think he gets it from Scripture, Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O oh, my soul? Why are you restless within me? Hey, soul, hope in God. Sing his praise. Psalm 84. My soul yearns, it longs for the courts of the Lord in my heart and my flesh. They sing out to you, the living God. Psalm 142. With my voice, I sing out, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him and tell him all my trouble. And that's the whole book of Psalms. It's a sung theological and emotional journey of learning to trust God with all of life, especially with what we feel. You guys have seen the, the Pixar, the, the inside out, um, all the six emotions. They're all welcomed into the arena of song, fear, anger, sadness, surprise, disgust, joy. God is not scared of our emotions. And he gave us singing to help us rightly process them. And learning to express these emotions through words of worship gives us a fresh perspective on what we're feeling. Australian professor Rob Smith has an excellent <clears throat> essay called Music, Singing, and the Emotions, Exploring the Connections, in which he writes the following. People who have experienced great trauma can sometimes find it very difficult to sing, for singing threatens to awaken their emotional processes, 
which they have deliberately shut down in order to protect themselves from the full horror of what they have experienced. But this is also why singing can function as a means of gently releasing suppressed emotions and of helping people to process the truth and the reality behind their inner pain. Again, I can't fathom how difficult it is for some of you to sing. But here's what I want to encourage you with. In God's hands, song has the power to bring darkness out into the light. I, I fully believe it, that when we sing something holy and something healing happens, when God's people sing together, and I fully believe that includes emotional healing to the point that, and you can call me ridiculous, I'll call it attempted consistency, but I'm even to the point that I will sometimes suggest it in pastoral counseling. Jim, man, it, life is heavy right now. I feel a little bit depressed. Everything just feels a little weightier right now. I feel more distracted than I have in a long time. And I'll say, bro, I'm, I'm so sorry. I want to talk about some of the mechanics of that, but can we try this for a couple weeks? Why don't you sing 10 minutes out loud in your car every day and for the next two Sundays, why don't you sing a little bit louder than you're used to at church? And then maybe, maybe we'll just, maybe we'll see if God uses that to bring you a little bit of peace. Maybe that'll work. I mean, I'm trying to be a good pastor with an open Bible. <clears throat> I mean, maybe we could all do that. And then collectively, we still wouldn't be as loud as Mike Hawkins. <laughs> it really would be nice uh, uh, if we could all sing as loud as Mike. Okay, singing expresses... Emotion, singing expresses emotion. <clears throat> All right, number four, what happens when we sing? <clears throat> Biblical truth number four, singing fuels joy. Singing fuels joy. This is actually the pinnacle of the discussion of how singing relates to the emotions uh, because there are so many connections between singing and joy and happiness um, that it has to be its own idea. Singing fuels joy. If you want some more fun reads, go read 19th century philosopher William James. William James at one point says, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I sing. Martin Luther again, music drives away the devil and makes people happy. They thereby forget all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. <clears throat> and just like the rest of this, the science here is impressive and undeniable. Not only does singing entail a massive oxytocin release, which is the happy hormone, but when we sing, there is an, like an explosion of endorphins in our body and these endorphins prevent pain signals from getting to the brain and they provoke the sensation of physical pleasure and they produce a general feeling of euphoria. <clears throat> so when we open the Bible, it is zero shock <clears throat> that the dominant, the dominant emotion associated with singing in the Bible is joy or happiness or delight. <clears throat> Psalm 71 I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing your praises. Isaiah 12, sing to Yahweh, for he has done glorious things. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O people of Zion. Jeremiah 51, in that day, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon. Psalm 30, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and you have clothed me with joy that I might sing your praise and not be silent. Zechariah 2, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming to dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And guess what? There are over 50 other passages that connect joy and happiness with singing. <clears throat> but guess what? <clears throat> now I have a problem. 
<laughs> it's, it's a big problem. If scripture and science are both teaching us that singing makes you happier, and that is exactly what the Bible and science are teaching you, what if the song is a breakup song? <laughs> like, what if the song's not happy? <clears throat> science, hey, Bible, what if the song, what if the lyrics you're singing aren't joyful? What happens? Pay attention. <clears throat> Emotional maturity includes the recognition that every strong feeling we sense has a secondary emotion close behind. If we are sad, <clears throat> anger might be tagging along. If we are surprised or shocked, fear might be like flanking in the margins. So when we sing, we are deliber deliberately seasoning the emotional experience with happiness. However, because anger and happiness are so seemingly distinct, the happiness we feel in juxtaposition to anger may be described as peace or relief. Or the joy that attends some sadness or fear may be felt as the freedom of relational honesty or vulnerability. So regardless of the combination, singing <clears throat> causes us to view our, emotion, our emotional life as it relates to happiness and trust. And here's what this means. Singing is a God-ordained path to a joyful and peaceful perspective on whatever you might be feeling or fearing. And this perspective is crucial to spiritual and emotional maturity. And this leads us to a different problem. And this was a little bit more fun. What if the songs themselves are happy? What if the, the, the lyric and the <clears throat> rhythm and the melody of our singing is buoyant with elation and positivity? Well, when this happens, our brains and our souls shift into overdrive. And listen, joy is like turbocharged on a chemical and theological and spiritual level. So when it comes to singing, the peaks of happiness are higher than the valleys of sadness are deep. Or very simply put, singing fuels joy. Number five, fifth biblical truth about singing. Singing sustains hope. Singing sustains hope. If God is the original singer, <clears throat> singing is divine, and he made us to be a singing people, the community, reflecting his own life and sharing in it, that's emotions, and doing so joyfully, <clears throat> then, hey, hey, wouldn't it be a little weird if this whole singing party died when we did? Right? That would be a little backwards of God. <clears throat> singing sustains hope. In 1947, theologian and civil rights leader Howard Thurman responded to the criticism that the slave songs of the 1800s were too otherworldly. If you're familiar with any of the old slave spirituals, you know that they're constantly singing about the other side, about Canaan's happy shore, about heaven and crowns and robes and, and uh, thrones and all these things that Jesus' people are gonna get when he comes back. And Howard Thurman felt compelled to speak out because the academic argument of the day that was being made was that the slaves singing numbed them into a trance and it was their way of an emotional escape and it actually made them docile and submissive and compliant. And if you wanna go read uh, Thurman's lecture, it's a great lecture, <clears throat> but uh, I wasn't satisfied enough and so I had to go dig up some testimonies of former slaves and hear what they said about their own songs. Of the old spirituals, Frederick Douglass said, Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. Thomas Higginson was an abolitionist in the 1850s and he wrote, 
The attitude of their songs is always the same. Nothing but patience in this life, nothing but hope for the next. Freed slave Alice Sewell recalls, we used to slip off in the woods on Sunday evening, way down in the swamps to sing and pray to our own liking. And we prayed for this day of freedom. We'd come from four or five miles away to pray together that God, please, if we don't live to see it, please do let our children live to see a better day. So in 1947, <clears throat> with these things in mind, Howard Thurman couldn't tolerate the academic trash about the hope-filled words of the slave spirituals just numbing their pain because he believed the exact opposite, the exact opposite, that their sung faith is precisely the thing that sustained them and it gave them greater capacity to persevere. Thurman wrote, these songs taught people how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against hope and to use those facts as the raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all of its cruelty, could not crush. Meaning, the slave songs were not too otherworldly because the other world they hoped for was real. And this is the same thing, it's the same reason why Paul and Silas can sing in Acts 16. It's the same reason Jehoshaphat sends the choir in front of the army. What? The choir in front of the army in 2 Chronicles 20. And this is why when we get to the end of the thing in the book of Revelation, one of the first things that John does for his friends suffering under Roman oppression is to give them a picture of the songs of heaven so that their hope would be sustained. Revelation 5, and they sang a new song. Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. <laughs> I love this for a thousand reasons, and here's one of them. This means our song will last. Hey, hey. Slavery and fear are not gonna quiet our song. Prison and oppression will not finally hush our praise. Babylon and Rome cannot mute the divine melody. And sin and death are failures. They are a joke at trying to silence the anthem of anthems that is the gospel. Because of and for Jesus, the song of God's people is an eternal song. And if that's true, listen, if that's true, guess what that means? It can sustain you now if you open your mouth and let it go. It can keep hope alive right now. And the really scary implication is that we probably need the gift of singing most when we are most tempted to think that we don't. The longer your list of excuses is why you shouldn't sing, the higher the likelihood that that's exactly what you need. How else are you gonna keep hope alive? Or in the words of the famous British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, is there nothing to sing about today? Then borrow a song from tomorrow. Sing of what is yet to be. Is this world dreary? Then think of the next one. Singing sustains hope. All right, take a step back for a second. <clears throat> if you got an open Bible and you want <clears throat> God's word to shape your words, then that means you need to be opening your mouth and we need to be singing. And when we sing, something really fun and divine is happening that might just be right out of the reach of, of explanation. And when we sing, we are leaning into the unity and community that God wants for us. We're expressing the deep language of the soul, our emotions. <clears throat> when we sing, 
We are inoculating ourselves with God-given joy and we're trusting the unshakable hope that we have because of Jesus. That is that what's happening when we sing? That's what's happening when we sing. Um, now, we want you to know, every week when you walk in here from the stage, from pulpit, Charlie and I want you to hear everything we say in light of the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected. The good news about Jesus is the supreme reality around which we want to orient all of life. That's how you do that with singing. Thank you so much for asking. Um, Don't flip there. Just listen to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews two says, because of Jesus's death, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And then, (laughs) I love this. The writer of Hebrews puts words from the end of Psalm 22 into the mouth of the resurrected and ascended Jesus. The ascended Jesus in Hebrews 2 says, in the midst of the congregation of my brothers and sisters, I will sing. Wow, that's fun. But hey, this is not the first time that Jesus has quoted Psalm 22. The first time Jesus quoted Psalm 22, it was on the cross, the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So by the end of Psalm 22, he's resurrected and ascending and he's helping lead the singing for God's family. So watch this, in the mind of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus, because of what he has done, he gets to make sinners into singers. The good news of Jesus crucified yields the good result of Jesus singing in the midst of God's people. And the song that we sing implies that a work has been done. Something has been accomplished. He sings us into a new mode of existence. If Aslan sang creation into being, Jesus sings us into the new creation. The implication is that on our own, our song is lost and ruined and none of us can sing our way into God's favor. There is no melody of morality that can make our song acceptable. Nobody but Jesus is pitch perfect when it comes to the eternal divine song. But here's the good news. Jesus's song is restorative. His is a song of healing love. And so the way that we get into God's family band with Jesus is to trust him completely, depend on him totally, and swear complete allegiance to him as Savior and Lord. And as we trust him, I hope you're with me, I I think I'm foolish enough to believe the singing that he calls us to will change us. I'm gonna believe that. I mean, I'd like for you guys to do the same. Fellowship Greenville, I hope you see and I hope you sing that ours is a sung faith. Because Jesus has undone the powers of sin and death, we get to sing divine and unifying and emotive and joyful and hopeful songs in his name. And I pray that God uses our singing to transform us in ways that we could never imagine. And I think it's a pretty good use of our words. So let's pray and then we can practice what we preach. God, please give us a weighty, staggering sense of your beauty, your creativity, your love, and your, Psalm 32, your surrounding songs. Give us a sense of that, Lord, so that we would love you more, Jesus, and we would long to be like you more. And so that we could be a community of faith just bursting at the seams with honesty and joy and hope and grace and forgiveness and with song. Fill us with song, Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit, please make these things true of us for Jesus' sake. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. You're the best. Amen.